Good. Well, let's um, look at God's Word together, shall we? Um, we're going to read from Genesis chapter 9. Um, <laughs> I hope you're not disappointed. I changed the title. It's not Troubled Families, although we will be having a look into one particular troubled family. Um, but we're going to be thinking more about how we live this big story that uh, we see in Genesis. So uh, let's read God's holy word together. It's the only thing you can really rely on. The rest of the stuff is, comes, uh, well, I trust God's given it to me, but I'm certainly fallible, but God's word is certainly not, in, uh, not fallible. It's reliable, authoritative, and we can trust it because we can trust him. So uh, let's start from verse 8 in Genesis 9. It's on page 10 if you're following, if you want to follow in one of uh, uh, the Bibles there. One within arm's reach. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you, And every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. We'll read on later. So we're continuing then our our studies, our kind of reflections on God's word in the book of Genesis. Um, as uh, anyone who's been here uh, more than a few times will know, this is really uh, a, the big story. And we're right at the beginning of the Bible's big story of the human race. The big themes, the big issues, where we're from, why we're here, where we are in relation to God. These big things. This is the, and the Bible, in one sense, is this big story of, of God and, and his, his unfolding, kind of revealing of, of himself to us as human beings and his purposes and his plans. And Genesis is kind of the, the foundation of it all. And uh, uh, we're in the story of Noah. We've been in the story of Noah for three or four weeks now, and this is the last time. Uh, next week we'll have a break from Genesis, and then our final one on Genesis will, will be after Noah, before Abraham. So we're in the story of Noah, and if you were here last week, uh, you will have seen or, or, or heard, or as we read, how after the waters go down from the flood, Noah and his family come out of the ark, and it's really like a, a, a tremendous fresh start for the human race. They come out into this, this kind of washed earth, if you like, uh, a new beginning. And, and they see, actually, as we saw last week, and you can get it online if you want to hear it or pick up a CD, um, they see God's goodness and God's grace, God's rescue of them. And we saw last week how as they come out of the ark, um, they, they hear, they, we read that God uh, blesses them, even though their hearts turn towards evil 
all the time. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago we, we heard how the, the, the flood came because the human race has got this, this problem. Our hearts turn towards evil, it says, all the time. It's a very kind of a worrying kind of uh, summary of what we can be like as human beings. And the flood happens and the fresh start comes and yet still there's, there's this flaw there is still this problem. It says at the end of it, our, our hearts still incline towards evil all the time. So there's a fresh start, but, this, but, but there's this need, as we saw last week, to realize that we, we need to live with, with this flaw. And the story of the human race is going to be, how are we going to live with this flaw? And the big story is going to be, how is God going to rescue us from that as we turn to him? So we see how God helps them. We saw last week how he gives them these, these maker's instructions, if you like, about how to live in this world uh, given you know, the, the, the flaw that we have. And we saw how God gave them some kind of help in how to live with creation, first of all. We saw that last week. We saw as well how God was going to help them to, to live with one another. And we saw stuff about the importance of life and, and, and how you know, human life is to be honored and valued and why. Because we're going to have to live in a world where we might kill each other. <laughs> the killing isn't, hasn't stopped after the flood. We have to kind of work out with God's help how we're going to live as human beings with this problem that we have. And God in his goodness gives these kind of makers instructions, these, this guidance. And you can see it all uh, from last week's message. I'm not going to into that now. But also, how are we going to live with God? And we saw that, that God commits himself to Noah and his family. He makes this covenant. And we began to look at it last week. And I want us to, to kind of continue there first. There's a covenant to Noah and his family, to the human race, and in fact, to the whole of the created world. And this commitment that God makes, this commitment he makes, he calls a covenant. And this word appears for the first time in the story of Noah. It was in chapter 6, and it's here. But this word is going to run right through the Bible, and it's a really, really important word. So I want us to, to think about what... Um, that exactly means. What is covenant all about? Why is it important? Well, we enter into covenants, don't we, as human beings? I suppose the most well-known covenant uh, is the marriage, the marriage uh, service. You know, when two people get married, they make a commitment to each other, and they actually say in the service, I give you this sign, they give you this, rather this ring as a sign of our love, a token of our love, and a sign of the covenant made between us this day. People get married, they, they're in covenant. They're committed to one another, and when they get married, the, the marriage ceremony is about that, amongst other things. And here, God promises to commit himself to his creation, to the human race. And we just read, didn't he, that he, he commits himself that, that the earth will never be wiped away again because of man's sin in this way. And he gives a sign of that, a sign of his commitment, a sign of his love. And the sign is the rainbow. And the rainbow appeared presumably after the flood. And God says, this, this is a sign that I care. God cares. He's involved. He get, cares about people. He cares about creation. 
He's committing himself in love to people and to the created world. And he gives this sign. It's an amazing sign, as we thought last week. Actually, it's a sign that shows up best when it's darkest, doesn't it? You know, when the clouds are really dark and the sun's out somewhere, the rainbow is really sharp, really clear. It's a, a wonderful sign when you think about it. It's a, sun, a sign that the sun is out even when it's raining. That's how rainbows work. <laughs> That's the only reason they work, isn't it? Because the light from somewhere else shines through them. And as someone has commented, this is a, an amazingly generous covenant, isn't it? This first covenant that God makes, with committing himself to, to creation and to human beings, is completely one-sided. Did you notice that? God just says, I'm committing myself to you. I'm caring about this creation. Who's it for? It's to all of creation. It's for all people and it's forever. If you read those words, there's this, this kind of repetition. It's for an everlasting covenant. It's, it's perpetual. It's incredibly generous. And the sign says that God has a purpose for the human race. It says that he loves his creation And it says that he's committed to renewing the creation and that human beings can come back home to him again. It's all there in in this great kind of covenant sign. So how's all that going to happen then? Where do, you know, know, that all sounds great. Well, how does it get worked out? I want to take a quick spin through the Bible. Do you ever skim stones? You know, you ever skim, scum, I can say. Have you ever skimmed a stone? It kind of bounces. You can get three or four bounces if you get it flat and it bounces. Well, what's what we're going to do with a quick skim through uh, the Bible uh, at this idea of covenant and where we see it. We're going to hopefully get about three or four bounces on the stone as we go through. So we're in the, in the end of this first part of God's big story in Genesis. We meet a character called Abraham. And the next part of the big story begins with the story of Abraham when God introduces himself to Abraham. And this man Abraham is brought into relationship, into a covenant with God. He's promised by God that God's going to bless him. God's going to be involved in his life. God wants to get to know him. And that it's not just for him or for his tribe, but that somehow all the tribes, all the peoples of the earth are going to be caught up with this. And Abraham's response to that is to walk with God. We've had that expression. Noah did it and Enoch did it in Genesis. He's to walk in relationship. He's to travel his life with God, to believe in God, to trust himself to God and to obey God. And his family continue in that same way. And that's a covenant. It first starts with, with Abraham. And then a bit later on, a few hundred years later, the family, the descendants, the tribe of Abraham, a few hundred years later, are now led by Moses. Remember Moses, another of the big characters of the Old Testament. And the Israelites and Moses, or Moses leads the Israelites and God rescues them. From slavery in Egypt. Remember they're slaves in Egypt and they're remarkably rescued. And when they come out of God's, out of this kind of imprisonment by God, they're told by God that he is in covenant with them. That this covenant, this commitment God makes to them is in that story. 
And God introduces himself to them as the Lord. He, he reveals a special name. It's L-O-R-D in capitals in, in an English translation. It's, a, it's the covenant name. It's a name that says God is the God who's committed in love to keeping his promises and getting to know his people and walking with him, with them rather. And they're told to walk with him. They're told to obey him. They're told to be loyal to him, to shine for him in the nations of the earth. And he says to them, you will be my people and I will be your God. And we read that in Exodus 19. In fact, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 begin like this. I am the Lord your God. That's a covenant phrase. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. That's, like, that's the second. We've got Abraham. Stones bounce once. Now we're at Moses. Well, what happened next? Well, a few hundred years go by, and it all goes pear-shaped. The people of Israel stop walking with God. They don't obey him. Actually, rather worse than that, they disobey him. They go after other gods. They forsake the Lord, and God judges them for that. They're exiled to the land of Babylon. And this, this, this covenant that existed between God and his people, they've broken it and they're under judgment. And God actually promises he brings them back again. But, but at that time, during that time, there are some prophets like Jeremiah and like Ezekiel. And these prophets promise a new covenant. You see, this old covenant, it, it wasn't really working that well. It was fine on God's part, but somehow the Israelites, they just blew it. And the prophets promise a new covenant. And Jeremiah, for example, if you just, uh, would, you can read it if you want, or just listen to uh, on page 793 in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah promises uh, something new from God. He says, The time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Then verse 33 This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. They will know me from the least of them to the greatest. And in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel talks about God's people being given a new heart. So what's the promise then? of a new covenant when people will know God in a relational way. For themselves, in their experiences, a matter of the heart, not the outward stuff, but an inner knowledge of God in relationship with him. That's promised. And then what happens at the Last Supper? We're going to share communion later. Do you remember what Jesus says at the Last Supper? When he took the cup and gave it to the disciples, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is the covenant that was promised. This is the new one. This is the way people can know God. This is the way people can be loved by God. This is the way people can be in relationship with God that touches the inside of their lives. What the prophets promised, Jesus says, it's in my blood. It's because of my death. 
because of my death on the cross. And the, in fact, what I read in Jeremiah, the New Testament writers take that and they say that was fulfilled in Jesus, just as Jesus himself says it was. So there's this new covenant then. And after the resurrection, what happens? Jesus is alive. He promises the Holy Spirit to them. Ezekiel and Ezekiel 36 promised this new covenant where a new spirit would be given to people. Joel promised the same thing, another Old Testament prophet. And they get out on the streets of Jerusalem and they have God living in their lives by the Holy Spirit. And the disciples get out there and they explain that the promise of the prophets is now fulfilled. The disciples say, we can all know God if we turn to him. If we trust God, we can know him, the covenant. We can know that relationship with him as promised. And that's where we're in now. That's the story. That's the story right up to now. It's there for us. We can know God in that relationship of love. He's committed himself to us in Jesus. We can know him that way. So there's this covenant to the human race. But there's this covenant for creation as well. It shows God's heart for humanity and it's played out through history. God wants to restore it all. We can know God's loving involvement in our lives because of Jesus. It's been completed through what Jesus has done. And more than that, one day the whole of creation will be brought into line with everything that the Lord wants it to be. We'll be part of that because of Jesus. If we're in relationship with him, we can be part of it. It's good news. It's a great story. It goes right through the Bible. And when we get to the very last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, which we've already um, uh, had uh, uh, read, we read it ourselves, this passage uh, earlier on, at the beginning of the service, In Revelation uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5, on page 1236, if you want to follow it, but there's no need to, we've already read it. But there's this picture of how everything is from God's point of view and how it's all going to end. And what is the picture of? It's of a throne in heaven in verse 2 and verse 3 of Revelation 4. See that? I was in the Spirit, says John. He has this vision. He sees this throne in heaven uh, with someone sitting on it, and it describes the one who sat there, and he's this kind of amazing uh, description. But did you, do you notice that in the middle of verse 3, a rainbow resembling an emerald circles this throne. This picture of God's throne is in the middle of a rainbow. Hmm. From this, ro- from this throne in the book of Revelation will come judgment, actually, as well as government and other things. But it comes through the covenant promise of God, the rainbow, God's promise, God's covenant, God's commitment. And then who is at the center of the throne? So therefore, in the middle of the rainbow, where we see it in chapter 5, the vision goes on into chapter 5, verse 6. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. That's right in the middle, if you like. I can imagine like a lateral rainbow, a rainbow kind of on its side around this throne. And in the middle of it is a lamb. And we know that that when Revelation talks about the lamb who's slain, who's it talking about? 
Jesus. And look what's, who's around the throne. There are, there, there are uh, people there. There are believers there, represented by the 24 elders. It's all in picture language. But more than that, who joins in the singing at the end? The whole of creation gets involved. The whole of creation is worshipping. Rescued people like us, if we're rescued, and the whole of creation renewed with Jesus at the center. So that's how the kind of covenant kind of is, is wrapped up from Genesis to Revelation. That's the last of my skimmed stones. So you see, well, it's a really important theme. But the heart of it is that God is committed in love to creation and to the human race. It's from God. He, he's, that's what God is like. Well, let's get back to Genesis now. Because when we get back to Genesis, what we have in Genesis is it, it's really like a map, isn't it? It's a map in this big story of where God wants human beings and, and, and where God wants the creation to be in relationship to him. And, and, and so on the map, if you can imagine it like a map out, out kind of spread, all this stuff that, that we, we hear about, about God, about his heart for creation, his love for it, the, uh, this wonderful world that he's involved in, that we're part of. He wants us to live for him in that world. It's kind of all, imagine that all on the map. But also in the map, on the map, there's this problem we're flawed. We tend towards evil. That's the map in front of us. But God has not given up on us. He wants us to live his way. It's what theologians call his common grace. That's it means to say that God's done lots of good things. God is seen to be good. He's involved in his creation. He gives us good things about being human. He gives us loving instructions about how to live. And because of that, Paul in the New Testament can say, God is not far from any one of us. So there's the map then. Now here's the thing. Where do you kind of live on this map, if you see what I mean? I know we've got... You know, if you, these days with smartphones, if I don't know where I am, actually it never works when I want it to, but that's the life for me. <laughs> you know, you can just turn on the Google Maps and you know where you are. It's a little, little arrow comes up and there it is, it tells you. Well, think about this map, this map of God's purposes, this map of, of what he wants for creation, the, the floor, his commitment to be involved. Well, well, as you live your life, as I live my life, where am I on this map? I'm living in creation. Do you get that? That we live, we've got this amazing privilege of living within a created world that God has given to us. I can live as a believer walking with God. And I can realize that that the world I live in, this created world by this good God, is the world where the people around us uh, are also living in that place. They're living in creation too, whether or not they're believers. Whatever religion they may be following, they're they're still human beings living within God's goodness out there on the map. Do we get that? Because sometimes as believers, and I was kind of brought up actually to think this way, so it may just be my problem, so forgive me if it's not, not your problem, but, but sometimes we, we, we're brought up to kind of believe that, 
these people who aren't Christians, they're, they're really awful people. You know, they're really bad. Because it says in the Bible, it's only evil all the time. And so we know that that's true about the human race. We think, ooh, I better stay away from those people. Uh, something terrible might happen if I get too close to, to, to people who, who aren't believers. And we forget that actually we have a great deal in common. We share this common grace. We share this common world. We're in a world where God loves us and wants to be good and wants to be part of our lives. So let's, let's meet and, and be with people in this area that we share with them in common grace. Let's let, let them see what it's like to live as thankful people blessed by God. Now, we know that people are sinful, and they are rebels. And without God, they are, we are hopeless. And we know that because we were there, too. And we still struggle with the inclination of our heart to evil. So, so I'm not, you know, the, part of what we believe is, is if we believe, but yeah, the, the human race is separated from God and is in a terrible state. Yes, that is true. But there's this other side of it as well. Both things are there on the map. Do you see what I mean? There's this common grace that we can share. So I want to ask you, how do you see your world? I know there's at least one person here from New Zealand. And um, I don't know whether you've ever seen it, but there's something called the, Ki- the Kiwi map of the world or the Aussie map of the world. And if you Google it, you'll find that you know, it's upside down as we would see it. And yet the world looks the other way around because New Zealand is kind of in the middle at the center where we like to see uh, the British Isles if we have that kind of map. Same world, but how do you see it? And as we look out onto the world that we live in, in our lives, where do we live in that world? We need to have this balance. Yes, the world is broken. It's flawed. It's sinful. Human beings are separated from God. As Paul says, we're without hope, without Christ. Uh, but, but it's also true to say that God loves the world. God is involved in the world. There's lots of great things about being human beings that we can share. We need that balance, don't we? It's flawed, but it's also blessed. And so that's why we do Serving First next week. Some of the house groups are going to get out there and do stuff with people. They're going to share with people. Because we want to share our common grace with people. We want to have conversations and maybe point to what's more, as we shall see. That's why it's good if, if we're at work that you know, we don't isolate ourselves from our non-Christian colleagues. You know, that it's okay, you know, share lunch with people and have meals and all that kind of stuff as we share this common creation. But it's not the end of Noah's story. Let's read on in verse 18 to 29 because there's something else we need to get hold of. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. 
When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. It's not quite happily ever after, is it? It's a kind of sad appendix in some ways at first sight to the Noah account. Now Genesis, as we've heard, is very carefully structured. The, the person who put it together in Hebrew did it very, very carefully. As We've talked about all, all kinds of patterns and, and Hebrew forms and poetry and numbers and all kinds of stuff. This was not thrown together. This was very carefully put together, this piece of literature which is also God's word. And um, so you might think, if, if it was so carefully structured, why, did they, why didn't the writer put that, you know, so I'm not going to put that in, I'll put that on the spike, you know, I'm going to put that in the bin, that story. Because it's not a pretty story, is it? Noah and his wine. Noah plants a vineyard, he makes some great wine. Obviously, quite a bit of time has gone by since the flood ended, so, and there was probably lots to say about Noah, but this is the one thing we've got. Ham is one of his sons, and he has himself a son too, called Canaan, and that's how we, I guess we know that it's, it's getting, you know, time has gone on. Noah gets drunk. It's very clear there. That's what happens in the, in the um, yeah, Noah gets drunk. He's naked in his tent as a result we get very few details. Ham, his son, sees him and behaves very badly. The, the text rushes over it very quickly. You go, Ooh, what's that all about? And then it's, it's gone. But he did something wrong. He disrespected his father. And disrespect in this culture is a very, very bad thing. So rather than looking after him, there's a bit of writing around the time that Genesis was written that describes how a good son should look after their father if he's drunk. You know, they, should, they should kind of you know, get him home safely and do the kind of things you would do. Um, but but, but what, um, what does Ham do? Well, he kind of takes the, um, the tabloid journalism approach, doesn't he? He's out there telling his brothers. See what's going on in there. Go and have a look. He's sharing it in a very unhelpful way. And by contrast, the second half of the story, where's the first bit? It's very quick, and you don't think, whoa, what's that matter? The second bit of the story is very slow and measured, and you have great detail. So what do the other two brothers do? Well, it kind of describes it. They're not going to look at their father's nakedness. So the two of them, we could have demonstrated this, but times have only got five minutes. So imagine, that, and they've got a cloak, the outside cloak that people used in those days, the Hebrew word for it, uh, was also, could be used as a blanket. It's a handy kind of combo. So, so they got uh, one of these outside cloaks and, they, and between them, and they walk backwards like this. And you can imagine, how do you walk you know, backwards into a tent? You know, uh, and then very carefully, they, they kind of, I don't know how, but they somehow... Drop it over Noah to hide his nakedness. They definitely do the right thing. And when Noah wakes up, he realizes what has happened and he curses his son, Ham. He calls him Canaan. 
Now, the beginning of these verses in verse 18 and 19 tell us that the, 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 the whole of the kind of human race or, or the, the peoples that populate the Middle East come out of Noah's tribe. Uh, and chapter 10 is all about that. And this is kind of the beginning of that. And so Canaan is going to become a nation. Uh, and there are consequences of Noah's action. There's this curse on Canaan. And if you track it through the Old Testament, the Canaanites in particular were noted for their pagan practices. If you've no time for it now, but if you want to have a look at that, Leviticus chapter 18 is a whole list of all, all the kind of sexual um, sins that the Israelites were not to commit. And, and God says in the beginning, you must not behave like the Canaanites do. It was the Canaanite gods that the Israelis eventually turned aside from God to worship when I said it went, all went pear-shaped. And so this kind of story is kind of preparing the way for that. But I'm not going to spend more time on it except to say it's the dark side of humanity really asserting itself again, isn't it? That's very clear. Noah gets drunk, dark. Ham responds, dark. It's the root of Canaanite culture, dark. That's where the Israelites are eventually going to lose the covenant with God because of Canaanite-type practices. Now, there's a warning here, isn't there? There are temptations. Guys, we're still flawed. We can end up in trouble no matter how well we've done before. Noah was described in the beginning of the story as the most blameless man that walked the earth. And look at him now, because he got drunk. Now, wine in the Bible is seen as a, a blessing from God. Uh, Psalm 104 says, it makes the heart glad. You can look into the Old Testament, and when the, old, the, the people of Israel were told to go to festivals in Jerusalem, they were encouraged to, to, to the, the tithe that they put on one side, uh, they would sell the, the stuff, that, and they would use that to pay for provisions to take to Jerusalem so they could could have a festival and God says yes spend it on food and and wine if you like but there's great danger there are warnings about getting drunk and this is one of them terrible things can happen when we use alcohol that way and Genesis there's two stories in Genesis of when fathers get drunk this is one of them the other one is the story of Lot, whose daughters, actually, grown-up daughters, make him drunk. And in both cases, terrible, devastating consequences follow. So what's the message? message is, God's given us wine, like the rest of creation, but don't get drunk. Don't abuse it. And if you can't drink it without getting drink, drunk, don't drink it. Sorry, it sounds a bit obvious, but... That seems to be a reasonable conclusion. The New Testament says, don't get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. If you want, if you like, relief from pain. If you want to know blessing. If you want to know help. All those reasons people go to alcohol for. God says, I can provide that for you. Don't go to alcohol for that. Use it responsibly. And if you can't do that, don't drink at all. But it's not quite the end of the story, thank goodness. Because in verse 26, it says, Noah also said, I go, phew, <laughs> what does Noah also say? Noah worships the Lord. See, blessed be the Lord. And that's that word for the covenant-keeping God. 
And Noah says, I'm going to worship the Lord. There's a future. There is a plan. The Lord is still the Lord. He's still the covenant-keeping God. There is forgiveness, and Noah can worship. Noah can trust the Lord to be in covenant relationship with people who trust him. That's where the story actually ends, with this kind of promise of the Lord is still the Lord, and he is at work. You see, God is, um, what do we get at the end of this? God is not just involved with the human race and creation in a general sense. He can be your God, your savior, your rescuer, and mine too. This new covenant is through Jesus. That's how we can know God. Through what he did on the cross, through his blood. And it means that we can know God individually in our own experience for ourselves. But we do need to respond. We need to repent, to believe. We need to turn to him and trust him. We need to ask his forgiveness. We need to welcome his rule. We need to turn away from our sin. And we can know this covenant-keeping God. You know, we, know, we live in Southampton, don't we? Just, this, this, is a, this isn't a particularly marvelous illustration, but I, I hope it might help. And there are many great benefits of living in Southampton. Got a great football team, lots of other things like that, aren't there? Uh, and... Uh, but there was an occasion when we were all offered, all of us who pay council tax, were offered more than that. Last year, we were all offered a free ticket to the Sea City Museum. Do you remember that? You got it through your door. How many of us used it? Oh, a few of us. We did. Not all of us. See, it's great to be in Southampton, but there was more on offer. But we had to respond. We had to use it. And common grace, God's goodness to the human race, is a bit like you know, living in Southampton, if you like. Uh, and we can all enjoy that as human beings. But there's more. Because God is saying, you can know my blessing in a particular way in your life, in my life. And we can know that in a way that it will last for eternity. We can enjoy being a human being until we die. Or we can know the relationship that God offers us that will go on forever in this new creation. God gives us, he wants so much more for us. And actually his goodness in creation is wanting to point us forward to what more he wants us to know of him. If only we turn and trust ourselves to him. It's in Christ because of his death and it's open to all of us in the human race. But we won't have it. If we don't respond. You know it's good to be a human being. But it's better. Much, much, much better. To be a rescued human being. And to know God. And to know his covenant love. And to know his commitment. And to know his presence through eternity. His forgiveness and not his ultimate judgment. That is much better. To be forgiven. To be renewed. To be secure in a relationship with God. That will never end. That's the big story. It can be your big story. It can be your big story. It can be my big story. It can actually be the big story for the people that we spend time with, the people we pray for, the people we know, the people we love. Do you believe that big story? Are you in it? 
Do you believe it for yourself? Do I? Do I believe it for the people I care for? If I do, what do I do about it? At the very least, I could pray intentionally about those people. I could begin to ask God how I can share that big story or how they will read that big story in my life. Let's pray that we won't just know this big story, but that we'll be in it and live it for God's glory. So, Lord, we just want to commit ourselves to you. We thank you for your covenant commitment to us. We thank you for all that you've done in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we may respond and continue to respond in faith, in obedience, in trust, in turning from what's wrong and walking with you. Thank you, Lord, that one day we will see you face to face. Will we be part of those rescue people worshipping you uh, forever and part of this creation as you intended and more beyond? Lord, we, we thank you for all that's in store and we pray that we may know that now, that we may be with you then for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, great. Thanks.